welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I just got back from lunch with my sister where I agroted. Agroted? Yeah, I overindulged. Oh. I ate too much. I was eating very quickly because I knew I was late for our pod sesh, but I was hungry, and I was like, I can get all this in before it's time to record and I was wrong. Oh. What did you have for lunch? Um I had a homemade like chicken pot pie pocket, like hot pocket type of situation at this Ooh. bakery in town and then a salad. That sounds good. It was good, but I ate it really quick and then my sister got a, a ham and cheese stuffed pretzel. Ooh, which was also like I like the bread part but the ham's was too salty for me, but it was good too. Got it. And that's what a groat means to overindulge. Mm. I will hold on to that word. Because we all do it. Yeah, pretty much. Sometimes, indeed. Um, so we are back with a new case, and it was a case that I picked. And before we get into that, though, I will have a question for Courtney. And just a little background for those of you who don't live in the Pacific Northwest. We had an awful ice storm that hit us last, the week before last. Well, it the ice storm hit at a certain time, but the effects <laughs> have lasted for a long time. I was without power for on and off for five days, no internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had hot water and I have camping stuff, so I was okay. Courtney was out of power for how long? For nine days. And no internet. And... No heat, and we had a boil water advisory for a while there. So it was like, boil the water, but how do you boil the water if if you you have no electricity? Exactly. (laughs) So it's been been a thing. And um, so anyways, I'm just prefacing that because, Courtney, I wanted to ask you for the question, what was something that you learned about yourself during that time of living like that? I would say I learned that out of the other creatures that live in my house, so partner and animals, I am somehow the calmest one. Mm. Yeah. So even when everyone else around me was sort of like anxious and pacing and panicking and being weird, I was just kind of like, well, we have no power. Gotta do- live with that. It doesn't really surprise me because you're very calm mm-hmm. by nature. But I guess what does surprise me is a little bit is, um, is your partner typically an anxious person? Yes. Because... But he hides it well a lot of the time. Well, because like we've talked about this before, we're like, you know, sometimes when people are anxious all the time, like myself, mm-hmm. when the shit hits the fan, they actually are the most calm in mm-hmm. the situation. But that's not what you saw in this one. Yeah. Well, I think compounding on it, um, I also think my partner probably has ADHD. Oh. Um, he thinks so too. But yeah. so he is typically doing like 27 things at once mm-hmm. and he couldn't do any of the things that he yeah. normally does. That was a thing was the boredom mm-hmm. of like, I mean, you could read. Which is pretty much what I did. I was yeah. just like, well, during daylight hours, I'm going to read. And then yeah. when it's dark, I'm going to sleep. But yeah, he could not focus on just one thing. Oh, you couldn't even go outside. Yeah, we couldn't leave would, our house. You would slip and fall. I fell mm-hmm. twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, um, um, a gal I work with was uh, she was also working in the ER, um, and she said it was just awful. People were not being able to be seen, mm-hmm. and because no one had power, they couldn't really like make them go home. So it was just like tons and tons of people in there. And it was just mm-hmm. really, really bad. I I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, I think what I realized was that all of my camping experience, like, I was fine. Like, I made coffee in the morning with my percolator on my mm-hmm. little Coleman stove. I made steaks on the barbecue because I had the propane. Mm-hmm. Um, I had... Uh, em- emergency I make candles so I had tons of mm-hmm. candles I had a indoor propane heater from the last time our power went out mm-hmm. I had a little portable power station I didn't have a um, generator but I mean this has happened before mm-hmm. so I was sort of prepared and then like I said with all of my camping equipment um, we had people over who had less than us because mm-hmm. our power would come on for a minute and then as soon as the power came on I was doing a little laundry or washing dishes or, or doing some dishwasher mm-hmm. or whatever, vacuuming, because not only did we have some people stay with us, we had their animals. Mm-hmm. So we at one point had five dogs, two cats, five adults, and a child mm. in my house. That is a lot of people in your house, which is not that big. No, not for that many people. Mm. But, you know, we had more than they had. So yeah, what do you do? You don't, you don't turn people away. Exactly. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have, you know, some friends that were able to to put us up once we were able to leave our driveway. Right. Like mm-hmm. getting to my parents' house where they had all the things I couldn't do. Exactly. It was too icy. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even drive. But anyhow. But we all made it through safe. We did. There is no permanent damage to I lost a fence, but it's been rebuilt. Yeah. We lost a lot of limbs from a lot of trees, but fortunately, no major damage to yeah. anything like on our home or, or cars or anything. So we, as unlucky as we were, we were also very lucky. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to see you. I know we didn't do this last week because of the issues. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so, all right, everybody. That's that. That's where we've been. I hope everyone else is safe. I know that not everyone else was as lucky as us. And if you're one of our listeners, I'm, I hope that your sense of normalcy is coming back. Yes. And that you didn't have anything awful happen. I agree. And I'm sorry if you did, because that fucking sucks. But we are going to talk about a new killer today. Uh, well, <sighs> killer I use loosely because they never officially charged him with any murders. Right. Um. But, piece of shit, yes, he wins that title. Uh-huh. David Parker Ray, a.k.a. the Toy Box Killer. Oof. He is, uh, he's, uh, he, you guys will hear, he's awful. If you haven't heard of him, ugh. The book that we used um, for this case was called Slow Death, The Sickest Serial Torture Slayer Ever to Stalk the Southwest by Jim Fielder. That um, seems like a good description of him, actually. Yeah. Yes, for sure. And this guy, um, he has a ton of stuff on him on YouTube and other true crime shows because he's he's a little bit unique mm-hmm. in what he did. He also had a partner. Right. More than one, which we don't see too often. So there's a lot yeah. to go over. 
Yeah, there was a really good episode of I Survived. Oh, um, yeah. Which one, one do his... they interview? The one that gets away first? No, the one that got away last. Or sorry, that's what I meant. The one yeah. that, that like, mm-hmm. turns him in, basically. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've seen that one or not. I feel like we watched it together. Maybe. Okay. Maybe it was I Survived a Serial Killer, not just I Survived. Oh, okay. Well. But still. I probably did. You know me and my memory. It's awesome. But we're going to start. And here we go. Today we're going over one of the most notoriously evil men in American history. He was an extreme sadist with an intense, insatiable appetite for torture and deviant sexual gratification at the cost of possibly countless lives. Now, remember we said that he didn't officially get charged, but there was suspicion that he was involved with a whole lot. Mulder? Sorry, my dog was barking. So what's frustrating about this case is that, you know, he died before he disclosed any of the actual murders he is thought to have committed. Today we are here to discuss David Parker Ray, a.k.a. the Toy Box Killer, and his accomplice, Cindy Hindy. His daughter was also thought to have been an accomplice, and we'll talk about her as well. So David Parker Ray was born November 6, 1939, in Balin, New Mexico, to Cecil and Nettie Ray. Prior or Cecil. Prior to David's birth, his uncle David had been accidentally shot and killed by his brother Alden when he was 13, playing cowboys and Indians. David was born the following year, and his grandmother was sure that he was the reincarnation of her departed son. She insisted he be named David after him, and she wanted to raise him. David's biological parents were poor, and they agreed it to um, him and his siblings being raised by their very strict grandparents. David had this to say about his childhood, quote, there really wasn't much affection in my childhood. I was there physically, but nobody paid any attention to me. You know, it was like, like I wasn't really there at all. Courtney, you know what I'm going to ask you? Lay it out for us. Bio parents giving custody to grandparents and then grandparents seemingly neglectful of David, who was told that he was the reincarnation of his dead uncle. So there seems to be kind of a two layered case of rejection and abandonment going on here. On the one hand, there is the fact that David's parents left him with his grandparents and didn't really seem to put effort into maintaining any sort of relationship with him. And so many people, uh, many children experience feelings of abandonment in this type of situation. Then there's this extra impact of his grandmother believing he was the incarnation of his uncle. You know, David wasn't valued or loved for being himself. His value and acceptance was conditional on his kind of taking his uncle's place. And I imagine that as he started to grow up and probably did not look, think, or act just like his uncle, his grandmother may have kind of rejected him again and stopped giving him the attention that he needed. Well, David felt as if his parents quote, pawned him off to his grandparents. He said that every six months or so, his dad would come around, but he was often drunk. And when he did come by, he would bring little David true detective magazines. David claimed that when he was about 10 years old, he started to have his violent fantasies or what he called fantastic dreams about raping and killing girls. He claimed that in these fantasies, he would always use a broken beer bottle. Courtney, doesn't 10 seem to be a little young to have this kind of fantasy? I'd say, yes, 10 years old is a bit young um, for such a specific fantasy to be developed in kind of a neurotypical situation. Um, And, you know, children hit puberty and start to think about 
sex and relationships at different ages, so he could have been a little bit, like, sexually precocious. But I would also guess that those detective magazines exposed David to sexual and violent materials that were entirely inappropriate for a child his age. And without attentive parents to protect him or explain things to him, he had to build his own understanding of what he saw. So from a more psychodynamic perspective, you know, thinking Freud and that kind of thing, it could be suggested that the broken beer bottle from his fantasies was a symbolic representation of his anger about his father's drinking. Well, David claimed he hated his grandmother. He felt she didn't care about any of them at all. By the time he was 12 years old, he was making his own bombs and setting off explosives in the woods. He claimed that his grandmother had no clue what was going on. His father also would bring him pornographic and violent magazines, per Wikipedia, and David claims that by the time he was 15, he had, quote, a private dungeon under a big pinion pine tree. I had a hangman's noose and a collection of broken beer bottles I planned to use on girls someday. When I got lonesome, I used to fuck a hole I dug in the ground. David claims that he was, as a child and even later as an adult, extremely shy. He wouldn't even look at girls. He would keep his eyes down. He didn't even date until he was 18 years old. He claims that he got married when he was 19, and at that time, he was a virgin. Courtney, I know he's not giving us a ton, but why do you think he wanted to hurt women so badly from so young that he made a dungeon and saved beer bottles for raping them? And also, this theme of these people we study of them being terrified of women seems to be pretty common. It's like they go from zero to 60. They're too shy to even look at a girl, but then they go right on to torture and killing them. Well, it's you know pretty clear that David was demonstrating antisocial behaviors from a pretty young age and without any sort of parental intervention at all. There were no limits in place to prevent him from taking action about his fantasies. And also, you know, there are our good friends that come up a lot, power and control. David was holding anger towards probably his mom and grandmother for not caring about him. And he was likely holding anger towards girls his own age for not noticing him and causing him to feel shame about his shyness. He couldn't make the girls and women do what he wanted in regular life, but he could overpower and control them in his fantasies and theoretically in the dungeon that he had built. Well, in 1959, David was married and the following year he joined the army and went to Korea. His wife got pregnant in 1960 and they had a boy. He got divorced a year later. David claims his wife would leave their infant son alone so she could go out and party. By the time he got back from Korea, his son had been placed in DHS custody, and he was granted custody after that. His biological mother and his stepfather raised his son until he finished his tour of duty. A couple years later, David remarried, and 90 days after that, he got divorced. In 1966, he got married for a third time, and he and Glenda were married for nearly 15 years. He had a daughter with Glenda in 1967. David was attending aircraft mechanic school in Tulsa by this time. Quote, One day, out of the clear blue sky, my wife decided she was going to bring home the bacon for us by becoming a whore. I didn't like it at all, but it sure paid the bills. Courtney? I think that David's multiple marriages speak to the difficulty he had with forming strong, secure attachments with others. He may have gotten married initially even because that's just what people are supposed to do, um, and it would have guaranteed him access to sex, which he wasn't getting before. 
But then, when his wife started doing things that he didn't like, but he couldn't stop them from doing, it was a challenge to his need for control over them, and so he would want to end the relationships. I imagine it may have been highly emasculating to David when Glenda started doing sex work to make money, because he, as the man, was, you know, supposed to provide, and he shouldn't have had to share his wife with other men. David claims he still had his fantasies, and sometimes his wife would let him tie her up. He had a dungeon in the bottom level of their house, but she never went in there. By the 1970s, David was, quote, designing custom-made torture equipment and selling the stuff in Screw magazine. David left Glenda in 1981 when he found her in bed with the man on her day off. He knew it had nothing to do with money, and so he left her and joined up with her sister-in-law. So... He got with Glenda's sister. The two of them went to California next and grew marijuana in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They did that for about a year, then left, deciding they wanted to get normal jobs. They flipped a coin on where to go and ended up in Phoenix. There, David got a job as a mechanic, and he and his ex-wife slash sister-in-law, or his ex-wife's sister-in-law, <laughs> got married in 83. Sorry. He ended up marrying the sister-in-law. David claims at this time he still had the, quote, fantasy and about six months at about every six-month intervals. Quote, I can't tell you what it felt like working around all that temptation. Any time of day you could see them, hookers, four or five of them walking by, night and day. I started hiring girls to help relieve the, prof- the pressure of my fantasy. I'd whip them, but I'd never break the skin, never. His current bride, Joni, would not entertain his fantasies, and she would get jealous of what he was doing. David said she started to lose it mentally and would drink heavily and would have many seizures due to the epilepsy she had. One time she even threatened him by putting a pistol to his head. In 1994, David made her leave and go to her mother's house in Pennsylvania. And then David was alone for the next three years. Courtney? I would say that David was now able to start acting out his fantasies, right? First with kind of minor bondage with his ex-wife, and then increasing the violence with sex workers. And like we've discussed before with other killers, there is often a slow escalation of violence as a serial killer moves closer to their first kill. David claimed that his fantasies were getting more and more persistent, and he started to take Viagra, which did not help the situation. David was drawing out his fantasies, and he was reading many true crime books, predominantly about serial killers, but he also liked the horror genre as well. Yes, David claims he was really lonely, and that is until he met Cindy Hindi. So we're going to talk about her, switch gears a little bit. Cynthia Hindi was born on February 6, 1960, near Everett, Washington. She was from a very poor family. Her mom worked as a bartender and did not give any money to her children. An acquaintance of Cindy was interviewed and relayed the following information. They were hungry kids. They were, quote, lucky to get a can of tuna fish out of Cindy's mom. We'd go over after school, and Cindy would have to beg like hell to her mom th- tell her mother threw out a can of tuna fish just to get rid of us. Cindy's mom dated a man named Dick, and when Cindy was very young... Dick would beat Cindy's mom in front of Cindy and her friends. Her mom, larried, her mom later married a man that, quote, tried to mess with her in bed. Cindy was only eight years old at the time. When Cindy built up the courage to tell her mom what was occurring, she was 11 years old, so for three years. Her stepfather claimed that he had been drunk, and it was an honest mistake getting into the wrong bed and violating Cindy. 
the child when he thought he or he thought it was um, his wife in bed when it was really the child. Well, Cindy's mom believed Dick, and the two of them kicked Cindy out of the house when she was only 12 years old. Courtney, we have poverty, uh, most like food scarcity. We have domestic violence in front of a child. We have child sex abuse. We have a mother not believing her daughter, an abuse victim. And finally, we have a 12-year-old being forced from her home, her own mother choosing a potential pedophile over her own daughter. Let's go over that. Well, there is so much to unpack here. You know, childhood neglect is the most common type of child abuse, but it's also the most commonly ignored or misunderstood. A child who experiences food scarcity and neglect is likely also experiencing high levels of the hormone cortisol, which is released during stress and is related to anxiety. So not having a parent who even tried to meet Cindy's needs most likely also caused an attachment wound and potentially led to a pattern of disorganized or avoidant attachment with others throughout her life. Then, experiencing sexual abuse, not being believed by her mother, and then being kicked out of the house would have been traumatic on multiple levels, and likely would have solidified in Cindy's mind that people were not to be trusted and that she herself was not worth very much. 12 years old is still so young. We're talking about a 6th or 7th grader here, 12 years old. Um, And being out on her own, she had to grow up so incredibly fast. Yeah, I'm reminded of um, Tommy Linsell's. Right. I think he was kind of out on his own pretty young. Yeah, I think like... His his mom just moved away. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After Cindy was kicked out, it seems like her whole family sided against her. She was the black sheep. Apparently, they called her a, quote, box of rocks, and that name stuck into her adulthood. Cindy, now on her, now out on her own, needed to survive. She moved in with a person named Mike in Monroe, Washington. He was a drug user, and most likely Cindy was exposed to this if she hadn't been already. Cindy would move in with another man who was allegedly a coke dealer, and based on what is in the book, Cindy was very much into cocaine. Cindy and this man were stealing guardrails that they would try to sell at scrapyards to get drug money. They got caught, and when they were out on bail, they sold an eight ball of cocaine to an undercover cop. Uh Uh-oh. After this happened, Cindy moved to New Mexico. By this time, Cindy was allegedly into masochism. She had rape fantasies and would ask her partner to act them out with her. Courtney, I've heard of this, and I don't think it's something we've gone over. Why do some people like rape fantasies? So I have two separate thoughts on this topic. The first is that survivors of child sex abuse have their first encounter, or excuse me, their first sexual experiences in the context of rape and violence. And so their brains begin to connect the physical sensations of arousal with the act of being forced into sexual behaviors. Similar to how we see our serial killers growing to associate violence and sex to the point that they are not able to be aroused unless violence is involved. Um, So there is that possibility of it, that it was just linked in her mind from a young age. Um, And the other thought is related more to people who may not have an abuse history, but enjoy consenting sexual behavior involving control or violence. In this case, you know, it's... Not uncommon for people who live very controlled, high-powered lives where they're often in charge or like overly anxious to be aroused by the sense of letting go of control and letting someone else control them. 
Well, Cindy expressed that she would like to rape a prostitute. The friend interviewed in the book claimed that he never wanted to participate in that, but alleged that she would bring it up. Quote, she was not ashamed of anything. She'd take her clothes off right in front of other people. She'd stand up on the side of the road and take a piss. She really got off doing it in public. Cindy would always be on the search for money. She would find men, even much older men, that would provide for her what she needed. Sometimes it may have been transactional. It's also alleged that she would trade sexual favors for medications or drugs or even dental work. Cindy's mom apparently married six times, and Cindy and her sister also had a string of men in their lives. The two women had eight children between them by eight different fathers. One of Cindy's sons was born weighing only a little more than two pounds. He survived and at some point, at some point, and did live with her, as he called 911 when she overdosed on some pills. Apparently, most of her children grew up to be thieves. Cindy also allegedly, also allegedly physically abused her daughter. At the time of her arrest, one of her daughters only had this to say, good. Generational trauma, Courtney? So much generational trauma. You know, Cindy, because she did not have the opportunity to heal or the role models to teach her anything different, fell into the same patterns of parenting that her own mother did. Cindy was apparently a violent drunk. Quote, people have seen Cindy pick up boards and hit guys over the head and knock them out. Cindy would pick fights with men and women. She was paranoid that people were talking bad about her and it would make her angry. She was also very jealous. It was alleged that she was even so jealous of a boyfriend who used an inflatable doll that she knived it and destroyed it prior to attempting to poison her boyfriend with rat poison. When that didn't work, she hit him over the head with a beer bottle, causing his head to split open. Her ex-boyfriend continued with, quote, I'm positive she doesn't feel bad about anything she's done. She doesn't know right from wrong. All right, Courtney, these are the two, villain, two main villains in our story. Let's hear what you think diagnosis-wise from either. All right, so David, I think, is more straightforward than Cindy. He was demonstrating signs of conduct disorder, aggression, sexual fantasies and violence, disregard for authority, all of that, from a very young age. Bomb-making. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and this progressed pretty easily straight into antisocial personality disorder. Um, and he also pretty clearly displays the features of being a sexual sadist. And I would put him in the category of being a psychopath as well. Cindy, on the other hand, had more going on. She experienced significant early childhood abuse, both neglect and sexual abuse, was then kicked out at the age of 12, where I can only imagine that the traumas continued. And as a younger person, I, um, thinking of her as a young person, I would likely have considered complex post-traumatic stress disorder as a diagnosis, along with disinhibited social engagement disorder. So I know we've talked about reactive attachment disorder, and um, DSED is sort of a reactive attachments sibling, so to speak. Um, so in this case, a child who does not receive appropriate care and nurturing looks to strangers, essentially, to be their caregivers and can demonstrate things like having no fear of unknown adults um, and will display affectionate and overly friendly behaviors to perfect strangers. Like, this is a kid that would walk up to a stranger and just, like, grab their hand and be like, hi, even if they didn't know them. Do this because they know that they need help, and this is, like, their way of trying to get it by being super friendly? Kind of, yeah. And, like, clingy in a way? 
clingy in a way. And also it's like, well, my mom's not going to give this to me, so I need to find this wherever I can. Okay. Um, so. So it's like almost the opposite <laughs> of RAD. Yeah, it is. Because RAD, they're pushing people away. Right. Mm-hmm. Huh, okay. Yeah. So um, there is that. And then because of uh, likely the ongoing abuse that she endured while, you know, living on the street as a teenager – um, she developed a substance abuse problem and had stunted moral development, um, which we would think of as, like her ex-boyfriend said, she didn't know right from wrong mm-hmm. because she never had anyone to teach her right from wrong. So she just did what she had to to survive, um, which by adulthood likely also met crit- criteria for antisocial personality disorder. So pyramid in heaven, hell. It was. Yeah. It was 1997 when Cindy, who was fleeing from the charges in Washington, made her way to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, which was a town coincidentally renamed in honor of the show. Um, I guess whoever the show was like, if anyone names the town Truth or Consequences, we'll come and film there or something like that. And so this town did. Anyways, that's where she met David Parker Ray. She met David because she was sentenced to community service to be carried out at the Elephant Butte State Park where David worked. She was on work release for domestic violence. She told David that fateful day of their first meeting, quote, I don't like women and I don't like men much either. It was love at first sight for David Parker Ray. David claimed that he slowly incorporated Cindy into his fantasy world. He took it slow with her because at first things or at first he um, things that he showed or did to her scared her. Eventually, she allowed him to use her body how he wanted to. The manipulation and grooming that David Parker Ray would inflict on Cindy would eventually lead to a duo that would commit the most disturbing and abhorrent acts on innocent women for years to come. Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, was not a town known for ethical police behavior and upstanding citizens. It was a small town that had a huge methamphetamine problem and cops allegedly on the take. It sounds like it was a hard place to live, and with the vast desert and the giant lake nearby, murders could occur and the bodies might never be found again. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. Courtney, anything you want to say about their Romeo and Juliet, you know, like, meet, cute, or anything else? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that David was 21 years older than Cindy. So there was already a very clear power differential just from the start, just from the age difference. Also... It sounds like this was one of those cases where a dominant psychopath found a willing subordinate that he could manipulate, and together that was the catalyst for their horrible crimes. I wish that they could have just found the stuff they were looking for in each other and kept it at that. Like, if they want to do a sadomasochistic relationship, that's fine if it's consensual. Right. But But they both needed more than that. Right. Um. So that's where we're going to stop today. Mm-hmm. This is just going to be a two-parter. Could have dragged this one out, but I just couldn't. I struggled reading this material, so. Yeah, it's pretty disturbing, so maybe just heads up for yeah. next episode. Um, I toned it down a lot, too, but I still was writing it, and I was like, ew. I don't know if I should be. But, I mean, I know this case has been gone over many times. Right. So um, for you true crime people, you already know this case. We're just going to try to look at it a little differently than just what they did. Why they did it. Exactly. So, anyways, anything else you want to say? Nope, that covers it for today. Oh, we got some really nice um, 
messages. We got uh-huh. an email um, asking us to do a couple cases. One of them is in our queue. Yes, it is. Um, so thank you for that. And then we got an Instagram message as well. And I appreciate that. And also, um, I wanted to give a sh- shout out to uh, Woobeat. And she's le- she's a new listener of ours. Oh. Um, I work with her. And she's had nothing but nice things to say about us. And she really enjoys it. So thank you, Woobeat, for listening. Yes, thank you. We really value all of your support and all of our, our listeners tuning in every week-ish. Yeah, <laughs> as we struggle through. Um, all right, everyone, be safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.